family, family. Oh, it's March 1st, and I am sick. <laughs> Two of my kiddos are sick. My handsome hubs is sick. And my oldest has a confident joy that is semi-annoying right now, mainly because he's not sick. But sickness cannot keep me from laying back and cozying up with you, fam. And I'm glad, because we're talking about perinatal OCD today with the wonderful Gina Avedonte, LCSW. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Alrighty, fam. So yes, if you didn't catch it before, I'm sick. Subtle, I know. And you know what I did this week that I rarely ever, well, I rarely ever used to do it until COVID hit. And then I would absolutely do it, probably to the other extreme. And now I've returned a little bit back to normal, but I did it this week. I took a few sick days. My daughter was home all week long. My middle kiddo, who also had his birthday midweek, well, feeling like death, was also home for most of the week. My husband and I both took a couple different days off. I mean, literally, the only human to be humaning per normal was my eldest. And uh, he wasn't shy about his kick-butt immune system, which, well, I'm glad. Hey, I'm glad. I'm glad he stayed well. I wouldn't wish this illness, this sickness, this virus on anyone. The boy could have used a little bit of humbling by, I'd say, Thursday or so. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting kind of right. But hey, it wasn't COVID. It's not strep. It's not influenza A. It's not influenza B. It's just a virus. Just get some rest. Just drink fluids. Just, you know, deal. <laughs> So anyways, I'm, I'm hanging in there, and I would say within the past 24 hours or so, I finally hit my stride. Like, hey, I think I can do productive things and not get swallowed up into the foggy jello that is my brain right now. So that's great. I love that for me. And alas, I'm trending in the right direction. Though side note, if I had a dollar for every time I've said that this week, I'd have approximately $6. So I don't know. Make of that what you will. But I am super grateful to really be able to sit back and enjoy today's episode with you and introduce you all to Gina. Because Gina met with me and recorded prior to the downfall that is this virus over here. And her knowledge and her expertise is such a gift to this community. Gina specializes in treating anxiety spectrum disorders and OCD in perinatal and postpartum populations. She has worked in maternal child health for over 15 years and has attended numerous advanced trainings for this population. And fam, she's passionate about providing training and consultation to other clinicians and specialists in the field. In addition to her own work in the field, Gina is the founder and clinical director of Change of Mind Counseling, a multi-specialty group practice located in New Jersey, and she acts as the field instructor and liaison for Rutgers University's Masters of Social Work program. Go, Gina! Look at you! Loving that! 
Gina is also a foundational member of the OCD Training School, which we will talk about toward the end of today's episode. And I really just appreciate all the ways she's amplified her knowledge and education around these highly treatable disorders. So thank you so much, Gina, for taking the time to hang out with the fam. Also, before we dive in, sickness cannot tone down my hyper-responsibility, y'all. That is still here to play. Leia's gonna play. So before we dive in, I wanted to provide a brief trigger warning. We are talking about perinatal OCD, which means that time span from pregnancy anywhere up to a year postpartum when children are entering the family. But this can show up for foster parents, adoptive parents, legal guardians, godparents, aunties, uncles. I mean, OCD is not picky. It will not discriminate. So when we're talking about the nature of distress the subtype can bring, intrusive content around harm, safety, and suicide can evidence themselves. More so, we will also talk about risk levels and safety recommendations around when suicidality or thoughts of unaliving oneself can crash this already tormenting party. So while this isn't treatment and we aren't your therapists, if you have any concerns for the safety of yourself or loved ones, please dial 911 or your country's emergency code in the case of an emergency, or go to your local hospital or even call a crisis hotline for non-life-threatening emergencies like 988 here in the States. And with that, fam, I invite you to come learn more about this important topic surrounding the bully that is perinatal OCD. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. And today I am delighted because I have the lovely Gina Abadante with me today. And I am so grateful that she is here with us because not only is she a very respected clinician in our field, an OCD specialist, but she's coming today to talk about a really, really important topic. We're going to be talking about perinatal OCD. We're also going to be talking about different aspects that can pop up and show up within that. So first things first, fam, I want to introduce you guys to Gina. So Gina, thank you so much for coming on the show. We are so happy to have you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yes, I am super excited to have you here. And I have seen Gina's name pop up so many different times in different ways. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you do trainings for OCD, right? You're also very, very much involved and a proponent of bringing inference-based CBT to the United States. And so we've talked with a lot of your crew here over at the podcast, and I'm so glad to invite you in too. So this has been months in the making, and I'm just, I'm excited for it working out, Gene. I'm, uh, this is going to be fun. This is great. Thanks. (laughs) So first of all, I was telling Gina before we started, fam, and you may have noticed this trend lately, but I've had the privilege of having so many folks, so many clinicians and practitioners and researchers come on the show and talk about how they got into treating OCD. And I just find it so fascinating. And so if we could start, Gina, we'd love to hear, how did you get into the process of treating OCD? Have you always treated it? Was it always within your purview of understanding grad school and beyond? Or has this been a more recent learning in your career? Yeah, there's always a, a question that I think is interesting because OCD is such a complicated disorder. So I always find it fascinating what draws clinicians to working with this particular diagnosis and and folks that are along this spectrum. So for me, 
I have worked in maternal child health for, oh my gosh, at least 15 years at this point. Mm -hmm. And I actually did not start out specializing in OCD. I worked with maternal child health. So mostly just perinatal clients, women that have gone through birth trauma, infant loss, infertility. So that's kind of where I started. And I had always noticed that there was this portion of my clients who were really high anxiety. And no matter what I was doing, they weren't really making too much of a dent in their treatment and were having sort of these really, just like really far-fetched fears about things happening either during their pregnancy or to their baby. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I attributed it to maybe they had trauma. I was just thinking, I I bet the the overlap here with trauma is going to be pretty significant. Yeah, for sure. So I went down the EMDR route and I got trained in, oh my gosh, this is a long time ago now, maybe 2015. And I know I I worked a lot with using EMDR with my clients and still they really weren't making a significant difference. And then I, I myself have had a panic disorder pretty much my whole life, Mm -hmm. except I had an incident in 2000, I shouldn't even call it an incident, it was really an event in 2018, 19, something like that where my panic disorder triggered OCD. And I had never had OCD up until that point. It had always just really been panic disorder. Mm-hmm. And the two really came together in this hell storm, <laughs> which was really an experience. And it opened my eyes to the world of OCD. And up until that point, I, I knew nothing, which I'm really passionate about now. Yeah, realizing how many clinicians are out there and just we have no idea what OCD is. We don't know how to treat it. We don't know how to see it, to differentiate it from other anxiety disorders. We're not taught in grad school. In grad school, it's this like just really like, yeah, this is OCD. People wash their hands and check lights and like that's it, you know? Right. But there is no real depth to understanding it. So it was with my own journey of going through this that I I am a forever learner. So I'm very curious. I learned as much as I possibly could. And it was from there that I started to see the connections with my own clients. So those clients that had really high anxiety and had really just very far-fetched fears, they weren't making any progress with treatments that I had been using that far. Then I started to see, oh, I think these people have OCD. Right. So It was then when I started to get trained and incorporating specific OCD treatment into my practice that these folks started to make strides in their treatment. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't I can't even this is unbelievable. Like I missed this for so long and, you know, totally, you know, sorry to the clients before them that I probably misdiagnosed and did not treat properly, but we can only do what we can with the tools in that moment, you know? Right. We can only know what we know. And I totally empathize with you there because we still were trying to do our best. We're trying to benefit the client and we were rising to that ethical charge, but also we can't know what we don't know. So what we can do is if we learn about it, and we see the power that that can bring to someone's healing and to their recovery, then we can tell people about it. I think sometimes people are like, well, I mean, I already really doubled down over here. And it's like, no, it's okay for us to be human. 
we can yeah. we can say like, wow, I totally missed that. There were two things that you said that I was wondering if we could touch upon really quickly. The first thing is, I think a lot of the fam listening may have loved ones or even themselves if they mm -hmm. have lived experience of OCD that have felt such heightened levels of distress at times. They've had panic-like or a complete panic attack, but at least panic-like features. And you mm -hmm. were mentioning that you had panic disorder, which you can mm -hmm. distinguish clearly from when OCD started to onset and it was different. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes, whether we're talking about our colleagues or some of just the fam out there going like, what, what is the difference if one can lead to panic? Can you describe just, I know it's not going to be our main thing today, but I, I yeah. think it's a good opportunity to explain it for folks, like just a brief little bit of a, a differential diagnosis. What's the difference between panic and OCD with panic features? And how could you tell like, oh my gosh, to the degree that you're comfortable sharing, yeah. OCD is on the scene now? Yeah. So I'm going to put it into words as best I can from my own experience yeah. clinically from the a DSM. Panic disorder is when people have panic attacks that occur out of the blue and they start developing avoidance behaviors because they're afraid of having future panic attacks. Mm -hmm. So it's really focused on the panic attacks themselves. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, that was very much my experience. And mine tends to be focused around the fear of being trapped or stuck. Mm -hmm. uh, so anything that I think you know, I'll be trapped or stuck. So for a very long time, I couldn't drive on bridges or highways. Flying was incredibly difficult for me because those are areas that I couldn't necessarily, I was stuck. You know, if I'm driving on a highway, you can't just necessarily pull over. You kind of have to like go with the flow of traffic. So it was very much stuck on the fear of having a panic attack and being stuck and not being able or trying to avoid having another panic attack. For me, so the two sort of came together, and I will tell you that they feel very different. So now, having gone through treatment, I can distinguish, oh, this is the panic disorder, or oh, this is OCD, mm -hmm. which is, it's very interesting, but it's also really hard to qualitatively describe because it's like a feeling mm -hmm. in my body, yeah, <laughs> which is like really weird to describe. Yeah. but. Yeah, for me, still the panic disorder gets triggered when it's around certain things. So if I have to travel far from home, if I have to fly, thankfully driving on highways and bridges is not an issue anymore. Thank you, ERP, for that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, anytime that I feel like I'm going to be stuck or trapped or I'm, it's not easy for me to go back to my safe place, that's going to be sort of in that realm of panic disorder for me yeah and it feels just comparing the two if I can try to describe it it feels almost like just pure anxiety it feels very like physical in nature mm -hmm. whereas OCD feels like this just 50 pound weight of doom that has been put on me so the two feel very different and with panic disorder if I am away from the stimulus so if I'm not in a plane or I'm not in the past, if I was like not driving over a bridge or something, I wouldn't necessarily have the symptoms. It was only when I was faced with that feared stimulus that it would create the feeling of like, oh my God, I'm going to have a panic attack and try to avoid it. Yeah. 
Whereas OCD is very pervasive. If it's if I'm having a spike, like it is in all areas of my life, there is no getting away from that stimulus. It is there until that spike passes for me. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. So if you think about it almost as like a phobia to the trigger, fam, like, mm-hmm. like and if that resolves, that resolves a lot of the anxiety. So there's more of that physiological or interoceptive cueing, which can be a struggle, especially for folks with, say, alexithymia that may have difficulty sorting out what are these different feelings I'm feeling. But yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And then you're going to find OCD is not picky. So it will just take over whatever you got going on in life. It's like it's not exclusive to the bridge. It's like all of this is bad, right? All of this is dangerous. All of this could become your worst nightmare. Yeah. So I think that's a really good distinction and I appreciate you sharing that. The other thing too, I was going to ask. So I actually, before I came into OCD, also did a lot of zero to five early intervention, worked out in Los Angeles, helped manage first five LA grant, was very involved in that world. And so when you're talking about some of these symptoms that you were seeing pop up across your clients, and we were mentioning just before that, that there can be some PTSD or trauma, it can be hard to differentiate sometimes because having that fear that something could happen to your baby could also be mixed in with some real fear about some trauma you've experienced or just some safety factors for you, for your family unit that may really fold in some real event stuff that would contribute to you having that fear, what if something could happen to my child? But one thing I will point out, EMDR, so we won't go deep into this, folks, but EMDR is an evidence-based treatment for trauma. And there are some that have, have uh, tried using it for OCD, but what we're finding is it doesn't really help with OCD. And so it is a fantastic evidence-based practice for trauma. But then you weren't seeing this growth. You weren't seeing movement. You were maybe even in some cases seeing regression. And in your experience, when EMDR is utilized with trauma, is it generally pretty helpful or do we come across some treatment-resistant folks? Because sometimes I think the debate is, are they treatment-resistant or is that the wrong treatment because you're treating the wrong disorder? And I know that that's not like a clear easy thing to delineate. That's why you want to go to your therapist. And we're not your therapist. We happen to be therapists, but not yours. But if you could kind of help folks understand what might look different when it comes, or if it's going to come up in the presentation, you can be like, girl, wait for it. But how it might look a little different if it's more trauma-focused versus something that is OCD-based when we're coming to some of those intrusive thoughts, those flashbacks, different things like that. Yeah. Yeah, it is really hard to differentiate because OCD loves to use personal experience, past personal experiences, and drag them into the OCD story. So it can be really hard to differentiate between the two of them. But generally, in my experience with the population that I've worked with, when people have trauma, like pure trauma that doesn't have any comorbid stuff going on, Uh uh-huh. They are going back into that event and reliving it as if it is happening in that present moment. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit different from the living the fear that we see so much in OCD where people are like, oh, my God, what if this awful thing happens? And then they start acting as if that thing is happening. Right. 
the folks that have trauma are literally in it. They are living it mm-hmm. as if that thing is happening. Mm-hmm. There's not that what if this thing happens. It's more they are they are really in it. They are reliving that experience. Yeah. It is um, happening instead of what yeah. if. Yeah. That's, exactly. That's a really good distinguishing tip. I think that's a nice foundation for us to go into this talk about perinatal OCD. And so for some folks coming in, and what I would just say is this can affect more than just biological maternal mothers or parents. This could be a godmother, the chosen family member. It could be so many different people that feel this deep love and connection for a vulnerable, precious person. And OCD is a jerk and is going to jump in there and really strike where we value. And so even if you're not a mom or a dad or a parent, I encourage you to listen because not only is this interesting, but it's relevant and it may affect you. It may affect somebody you know. Chances are, and I'm sure we'll get into chatting about this more, but chances are it's more common than you realize. And so uh, I would just encourage folks, even if you're not parents, even if you're like, I never want to be a parent, you might have a sister, brother, mother, somebody that is like, I'm going to maybe bump into this. And this could be some really critical, in some extremes, life-saving advice to be able to say, hey, get connected with somebody that can check you out for this. So we're going to get started here today and we're going to start talking about perinatal OCD. And so first off, what do you ultimately see the goal being for folks to be able to walk away with some kind of tangible understandings today? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, the most important thing is that OCD in general is so misunderstood and misdiagnosed. Yeah. So the numbers that we have statistically at this point, I would say they're misleading because I think there are so many people that walk around having OCD mm-hmm. and they've just never been properly diagnosed. Right. So I think it's just so important to be able to get accurate information out there for people to be able to identify with it and be like, oh, my gosh, that is me. Like this, this is what happened so that they have some language to put to their experience and that they don't walk around feeling like they're nuts, that there's something wrong with them because there is nothing wrong with them. They have a a really common mental health event that has happened for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And there is more chatter about baby blues, postpartum depression, Mm -hmm. and that is important. But also in the realms of postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD, perinatal, because as As we will talk about, this isn't something that just happens postpartum and isn't just influences by hormones, although hormones can amplify any sort of, you know, excitement to any given party, any mental health, any physical health issues. And so in terms of perinatal OCD, this is also important to to help us realize, like, postpartum depression is absolutely a real thing. But so Mm -hmm. are other mental health presentations, other mental health disorders. And it is really important for folks to have this information because often I think people feel shame and terror about Mm -hmm. different thoughts that might arise. And so when they go into the OBGYN, when they have the well baby appointments, how are you feeling? You feeling okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those aren't things that are readily going to be shared with the doctor. Sometimes they will. 
But a lot of people feel shame and, and a lot of people feel like it's their fault that they are this crazy person, like you said. And they're not. They've got a brain that's braining and they're sleep deprived and they got this little baby. But also this can last into older childhood as well. It's also important. I think a lot of times in the perinatal OCD world, we think like, oh, it's really just going to be about harm towards the baby or harm coming to the baby. And while that is a common presentation that we see, People with perinatal OCD can have any subtype. It can have any obsessive theme. Perinatal OCD is not a diagnosis unto itself. It's more a either a flare-up of pre-existing OCD or a new onset of OCD that happens during the perinatal period. And the perinatal period is during pregnancy and up to a year postpartum. Mm-hmm. So it can be any theme that occurs I mean, I've seen, I've really seen the gamut of folks that come to me with perinatal OCD, and it's not always harm coming towards their child. I've seen existential, I've seen scrupulosity, I've seen relationship OCD, I've seen pedophilia OCD. I mean, like literally the sky is the limit. Right. It's just that this little person is now involved in this experience with them. In the story, and it's totally like a main character. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah. So. I would say, you know, sort of a a more common presentation might be for someone that this is not specifically based on one client. This is sort of a a mishmash. Uh Yeah, this is a a mishmash of a bunch of different clients that I've worked with over the years. And some of it is also from my own imagination. But if I have someone that comes to me that, let's say they're 38 years old, they are a cisgender Caucasian woman. And let's say that they had a baby eight weeks ago, which was conceived through IVF. This particular person is feeling a lot of anxiety or felt a lot of anxiety during their pregnancy. And it mostly surrounded the fear of having a miscarriage, which under normal circumstances is not OCD. Right. Uh, That's a normal doubt to have, especially for someone that has gone through infertility, because loss and grief is a huge component of infertility work. And that's a completely different podcast altogether. Yeah. I won't go down that rabbit hole, but that is Some people are like, wait a minute, I need that rabbit hole. I'm ready to know, folks, I know we do need that rabbit hole because there is a lot of pain that you don't learn or go through the route of IVF if you haven't experienced some loss, whether it's the loss of the idea or the actual number of miscarriages you may have experienced. So yeah, I'm glad you clarified that point. So there would be that fear, as you were saying, mm-hmm. during that anxiety, and usually that would be normative considering the situation. But it sounds like in this case, there might be a bit more to it. Right, for sure. So what might take that over the edge into a little bit more of an OCD presentation would be, let's say that that person is now checking throughout their pregnancy for signs of miscarriage. They're checking their body to see if there is signs of cramping or if there's bleeding if they have any lack of fetal movement or they are not seeing as many pregnancy symptoms, just really doing a lot of that internal threat monitoring and checking their body for symptoms or lack thereof. That might sort of move that more into that presentation. Mm-hmm. So let's say that this person you know, goes through, they have a healthy pregnancy, the baby is born, and the person continues to experience anxiety which they're maybe going to chalk up to feeling overwhelmed with caring for a new baby, which totally normal. I mean, having a new baby and having your 
whole life turned upside down for this little person and feeling overwhelmed is, again, not OCD. Right. <laughs> it's a pretty normal experience. It's a huge life change. So, yeah, it is a it is an adjustment. So let's say that this person is now maybe having some thoughts of, oh, my God, what if I do something wrong? What if I make a mistake and this baby gets hurt? What if the baby dies? You know, that might, again, sort of move into that realm of OCD if this person's maybe Googling their thoughts before they make a decision about how to care for that baby or maybe looking for reassurance from their partner or their mom or their mother-in-law or their sister and friends about different opinions on what would be considered the best way to care for their baby. Sorry, I just, I'm going to tell a quick story because I had to laugh. I didn't realize I had OCD at the time, but when my firstborn was born, we had a lot of feeding struggles. He had trouble with latching, and so I breastfed, but I also supplemented. And one morning, it was probably like, I believe it was like a couple of months old. I got up sleep deprived. I had I fed him and it and it was like a whole shebang because anybody who has supplemented on top of breastfeeding, you're still breastfeeding mm-hmm. for a long time. Then mm-hmm. you're doing that. Then you're pumping. And it's like I literally felt like a cow hooked up to a machine like for a year there. But I, I woke up and in my sleep we had one of those formula things and we had it to whatever the supplementation ounces would need to be or whatever. And so I was making a bottle. And then when I went to wash out the bottle, I realized there was no formula in it that I had I had spouted open an empty spout, dumped it in. I was so sleep deprived. <laughs> I went and fed that to the baby. And I panicked. I gave water to the baby. You would have thought I poisoned this child and was like already out digging a grave. And so I woke my husband up who I was like, I gave water to the baby. And he's like, OK. And I'm like. Oh, it's so serious. It's so bad. But I Googled it and I, I just wonder what it was like for mothers before Google. Probably like uh-huh. a lot better because yeah. nothing positive comes from the Googling. But as I was typing it in, you know how it can auto populate like common right. searches. I felt real sad and a lot better about my life choices because as I was going to type in water, there were a lot of uh-huh. suggestions that were very bad and I was like oh I'm not any of those yet not enough insight to be like it was some water chill your girl woman and so I ended up calling poison control and he was like what did you get the baby and I was like like it was it was like two ounces of water I'm like I gave the baby water and he was like how much water and I'm like two ounces and he was like okay his name was Amir. I still remember his name because his name was Amir. And Amir was like, this woman has not poisoned her baby. But I was like, no, I, I think I read an article one time. I had a lot of logic that went into that. But I was like, oh, and Amir, he, uh, he had a way with words. He was like, you're OK. I think you're OK. Monitor him. Of course, I was like, I, I bet. Uh-huh. <laughs> but anyway, it just made me giggle because at the time, I didn't realize that was OCD and I could see the humor in it like a couple days later when I'm like, yeah, that's okay. But now, just as you're describing this and the Googling and all the things, I was just like, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. Anyway, I'm sorry. I totally interrupted your vignette. Funny. No, I think it's true because I remember when my daughter was born. I don't even think they do this anymore, but there was like a baby class that you had to do before you left the hospital. Uh huh. And they like drilled it into you. If you're going to bottle feed, you have to sanitize the bottles every single time and you have to boil the water and Uh don't 
feed them boiling water. Uh huh. Who's going to do that? But Wait till the temperature is right. It's like a whole <laughs> science experiment. Like get out the beaker, and you're like, yeah. It was a whole thing. It's, it's enough to really. I mean, you're already feeling so vulnerable. It's like. Wow, can I? Yes. I thought I knew how to take care of this baby, but apparently I don't. Well, and breastfeeding at large, since we're talking about perinatal, let me just normalize this too. Breastfeeding, as natural as it is, it's happened for years and years and centuries and beyond. It is not as easy as you think. So if you've never had a child and you try to latch a baby and you think that should be it, and then you can't feed your child, you already feel like a failure, even if it's not your fault, even Uh in the slightest. And I'm not here to judge on people that decide, no, breastfeeding isn't for me, period. They might have trauma. They might have Mm -hmm. different illnesses. They may have just a preference, like, this is the best way for me to love my baby. Fed is best. Fed Uh is best. All the the passionate breastfeeders, the little lechie club is going to be like, but it matters. Okay, yeah. I'm just saying. As somebody that struggled with breastfeeding and I didn't give up, but I worked hard, okay, mm-hmm. you already feel vulnerable. And then you're like, I gave them that. And it was just, yeah, it was uh, it was a whole thing. And with breast pumps and stuff, you can put it in like a baggie and put it in the refrigerator yeah. and it's good for 24 hours or whatever. And it's at room temperature for a certain hour. So you don't have to sanitize everything. But as I was yeah. meticulously washing, as I did every three hours or so, I was like, I didn't do this. Anyway, totally got back on that rabbit trail. But you were talking about this 38-year-old woman going through this process. And so she might have a myriad of thoughts, like you said. What if I could do something and and not realize that the baby's in harm, et cetera. And so that's where we left off before I jumped in there. (laughs) No problem. So let's say that this person at some point switches from, oh my gosh, what if something happens to the baby what if I do something wrong and at some point it switches into more of like an identity focused thought that says oh my gosh what if the baby slips under the water and I don't pull the baby out or what if I push the baby under the water Mm -hmm. that can then push that person into more OCD or even more like of a distressing experience with OCD and maybe the person starts questioning why they had that thought or thinking that there must be something entirely wrong with them for even having that thought to begin with. And then that's going to create more anxiety and more fear that just the presence of that thought of it being there, it must be that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Things like, you know, what's wrong with me? I worked so hard to have this baby for so long. Why would I be having thoughts about hurting them? Am I a monster? I must be because I'm even having these thoughts. Mm-hmm. And then that would sort of look at people spending a lot of time trying to figure out or avoid their thoughts, trying to figure out or think about why they're feeling this way and just spend a ton of energy trying to make those thoughts go away. And then this person might be going back into, I heard stories about women snapping and hurting their children or women pushing their babies under the water in bathtubs. and these things just adding into that story. And then the person might decide that it's time for them to stop spending time with their baby and limit themselves being around that child because that presence of the thought must mean that it's more likely that it's going to happen, Mm -hmm. which is thought of infusion. But it's a really common presentation for people that have perinatal OCD and what it can look like. By the time they come to us as therapists, they're so distraught over the presence of these thoughts and trying to figure it out and avoid them and do all of these things that they're just completely beside themselves. 
Yeah. And Sam, as you might imagine, thought event fusion is when a thought and an actual event get fused together. Like the fact that Mm -hmm. I had the thought means it could have or did occur. Mm -hmm. And so if you're newer to that term or the fusion, we'll talk about sometimes within the OCD field, thought, thought fusion, thought action fusion. There's lots of different things that can be fused together. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important distinction. Another thing I'm thinking about is generally, if we really want to do something, we're not stressed about it, right? Mm-hmm. If we're like, if I'm like, I want to go for a walk, I'm not like, oh, no, what if I put on my shoes? What if I go out the door, right? And so we've talked about this many times on the podcast before, but for any newer fam, we talk about the difference between whether something's egocentric, really in sync. I think of the band in sync, although it's a little mm-hmm. controversial because JT's in a little bit of hot water right now. But if is it in sync with your values or is it ego dysonic, the last thing you would want in the world to happen, not what you believe in. And so if you're like, yeah, I could push them under and I have no qualms about that. There are some concerns to be had. But if you're like, this is the last thing I would want to do ever. And I have so much anxiety because it's so opposed to what I would ever want to do. But what if I secretly want to do it? That's a great example of the ego dystonic nature, the this is as distant from what I would ever want to do as possible. And that is OCD's bag, right? Like it, it, it's, it is very infamous for being very ego dystonic. And you can imagine, especially if you have like this person that you're describing, gone through something where they've fought so hard, they've paid thousands and thousands of dollars to go through. Mm-hmm. IVF treatment is not cheap. They have struggled and felt broken by this journey and then have this thought, not only what if something could happen and I don't protect the baby, what what if it's I, me, I'm the problem, puts a little spin on that meme. Oh my gosh, because now it's everywhere. I can't separate me from me. Now it's everywhere. And so you're describing that process of really how understandably and, and how compassionately we can empathize for these folks that are going and and folks being both moms and dads and caregivers, loved ones that are helping care for your child. We had Jason Adams on last season, as well as Jenna Overbaugh talking about their experience of perinatal OCD. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a really great point. So in terms of from there, then how does that client typically get to a place where they access treatment? Because I would imagine as terrified as they are, they would also be terrified often to say that out loud. Maybe they share it with a spouse or partner or co-parent. But how do you find folks accessing treatment when they're in this state? Yeah, so this is where it gets really challenging because I think a lot of people are so afraid to tell anyone about their thoughts. For a lot of reasons. They're afraid of judgment. They're afraid to tell a provider because they're afraid of, you know, I live in New Jersey. So in my state, it's called DCPNP, which is the Department of Children and Families. So they're afraid of like someone coming and taking their children away from them Mm -hmm. or, you know, legal involvement, being hospitalized. So all of these things are really big motivators for people to keep quiet and suffer in silence. And the, the scary thing is that If we look at the statistics, many OBGYN providers, so midwives and doctors and lactation consultants, are not educated about what OCD looks like. So, you know, when you're when you go in for your eight week, six week checkup, 
you're given what's called an Edinburgh depression screen. So it's a short number of questions and they're very, very general. And to be fair, this Edinburgh was developed in Scotland. So some of the questions don't really even get the point across to native English speakers, let alone if it has to be translated into another language. It does not translate well. Been there, done that. I worked in a OBGYN clinic for lower socioeconomic clients for a very, very long time. And I administered that Edinburgh and the feedback that I would get from my clients that did not speak English as their first language was that it just doesn't translate well and a lot of the nuances missed. So this is what women are given as their first line for mental health issues postpartum. And yeah. it's not great. Right. It's really not a great assessment that we have. Well, um, and, and Gina, being on the East Coast there in Jersey, you're going to get, when we were in California, for example, there are people immigrating in mm-hmm. constantly, too. So if we're talking about not only English as a second language, if they even know English yet, maybe right. they're moving their family, they have community where they don't necessarily need to learn English right away. A lot of people right. learn English in school if they go through the school process. But also somebody that may be here on a temporary basis or is trying Mm -hmm. to get citizenship. There are some extra fears and vulnerabilities that can come in, not only in there being a language barrier, but like, oh, my gosh, my my status here relies on me feeling like I have to be perfect and check all these boxes. And so if you have a thought that is really scary and really terrifying and you think could be you, you're the problem, then that really threatens more than just the situation you have at hand. It feels like it that also is threatening and jeopardizing your ability to stay or be with maybe if you immigrated to be with family. But certainly we see this in other countries, too, and we have an international audience. And so this this comes up. It does. It really does. And it's it's really hard. So if we're relying at this point on one assessment scale, The other part that we would need to rely on is our providers to understand what they're seeing in front of them, right? Mm -hmm. And so many providers just don't understand OCD. And there is a number floating around out there that through the Postpartum Support International that says that 70% of OBGYN providers are not even seeing or misdiagnosing perinatal OCD as postpartum depression which it just means that people are not going to get the access to care. They're not going to get the right treatment. And then they're going to start thinking like, oh, my God, there must be really something wrong with me if I went for treatment and it did nothing or it even made me worse. Right. And then on top of that, of that 70 percent of providers that are misidentifying perinatal OCD, 30 percent of them are misdiagnosing harm obsessions as postpartum psychosis. So. It's a really significant issue where we need to have more education with our providers to be able to have more accurate diagnosis and just being able to to see what is, you know, sitting in front of us and with our with our clients. So Gina and I were talking before we started recording today, fam, and I think it's important to talk about postpartum psychosis and differentiate or even more broadly. True psychosis versus psychotic features within Mm -hmm. an OCD presentation. Because there is 
a difference, a huge difference between a true psychotic episode and a psychotic disorder and what can present as psychosis to the untrained eye. But resolves pretty quickly, like superstar psychosis, mm -hmm. because psychosis is not like something that goes away with just like one pill and a couple days right. in the hospital. Psychosis can be days, weeks, months long at times. But we do see these psychosis presentations, particularly in high severity levels within OCD patients. And so sometimes I think providers, especially that aren't aware of OCD, they maybe hear some of the paranoia. They hear some of like just almost that panic level of paranoia. But can we do some distinguishing factors between what you would describe as perinatal OCD and true yeah. postpartum psychosis? Yeah, for sure. So perinatal OCD is, you know, it's it's OCD. It's always going to start with that, the what if, the fear. Oh, my God, what if this awful thing happens, right? Mm -hmm. And it looks just like every other form of OCD. We can have a bunch of different presentations. We can have all the, the different subtypes and things like that. It's always going to be that ego dystonic. So these thoughts are going to be upsetting. They're going to bother the person. They're going to do everything within their power to try to make these thoughts go away or to prove that they're not true or anything you know, along those lines. There's always going to be that compulsive nature of it as well. So I think, you know, we're going to be, we're looking at perinatal OCD. We're going to be seeing that. We're going to see the obsessions. We're going to see the fear. We're going to see that really heightened distress about the presence of these thoughts uh, and not wanting them to go away. We're also going to hear, which is, I, I say that this is sort of like the, the landmine for OCD is, I know this sounds ridiculous, but, and you're going to hear clients say like, I know these thoughts sound ridiculous, but. Ba, 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 whatever comes after that, you know, whatever their thoughts are, because they have some of that insight that says, like, I don't I don't understand what's happening. I know that this is not who I am, but these thoughts are still here and I don't know how to make them go away. I don't know what to do about them. Mm -hmm. So when we look at postpartum psychosis, it is a very different animal entirely. So postpartum psychosis, first of all, is extremely rare, mm -hmm. extremely. And mm -hmm. To be really honest, we just don't have the education because we don't have enough clients and people that have experienced postpartum psychosis to be able to study them. So the information that we have is sparse because there's just not enough people to be able to see this. They say that the number is somewhere between one and three out of a thousand births per year, which really is a very small number. So it's it's hard for practitioners to be able to get accurate education because there's just kind of a full lack of knowledge because we just don't have the ability to look at this disorder closely enough. Yeah. But the information that we have at this point will say things like, you know, postpartum psychosis is not the most accurate name for this diagnosis because this psychosis is an aspect of a bigger diagnosis it's like a symptom of a bigger diagnosis rather than the psychosis being the the like the main event, the, the main, main event. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, in, in terms of so if we think of disorders like schizophrenia, schizoaffective mm -hmm. disorder, then we first of all, people aren't really getting diagnosed with those types of disorders until they are of at least a young childbearing age. Some people are going right. to have children before they're even 
of age really where we're more comfortable even providing that kind of diagnosis. But yeah, it would be really, really rare if it was the first psychotic episode. If you already Mm -hmm. had a psychotic disorder that could be triggered by stress or it could be triggered by different changes and your brain Mm -hmm. braining, then this is not going to be a surprise that this could be a possibility at, at some point, whether postpartum, we're not talking about like you delivered and you're in a psychotic episode, right? Right. But even within that year or during pregnancy, it would be very, very unusual for a initial first psychotic episode to show up during the perinatal process. And like you said, it, if there was some true psychosis there, it would be more likely because of a disorder that really captures psychosis as one of its main criterion. Right. Not something like OCD. And so you're talking about some of the differences and part of the reason why the research isn't there. You're not going to get an ICD-10 or a a DSM-5 billing code, at least here in the States, on that because... Yeah, it's it's a symptom of a larger issue. Mm-hmm. It's like get, giving you a headache disorder and you're like, well, the headache could be a thousand different things, right? Like it could be. It's different. Exactly. It's different. So you talked about within perinatal OCD, it is more egotistonic. Here, mm-hmm. within true psychosis, you are going to have more egosynthesis. It's going to be more egosyntonic. Yeah. So this is sort of the tricky thing because... For anyone that has worked inpatient, I have, so inpatient in a hospital, you meet a lot of people who are psychotic and they are highly distressed, highly agitated, right? So this is where a lot of people get stuck is like, well, through pop culture or whatever, you see people that are quote unquote psychotic, but they are really agitated, right? So it's the thoughts can cause agitation, but it's not the same. So someone that has OCD, they are disturbed by the presence of their thoughts. Oh, my God. What do these thoughts mean about me? Why are they here? Why are they here now? What is happening? Like, that's what causes the distress. The presence of the actual thoughts is what causes the distress. When people are psychotic, the presence of the thought is not what causes the distress. It's the belief that the thoughts are true and happening in that moment. So if you have someone that's psychotic and has a fear of, I don't know, persecution, right? So they fear that people are watching them and following them and the FBI has bugged their phone. They are living in that and acting as if that is real. So the agitation is coming from believing that they are being followed, not the, oh my God, what, it, what do these thoughts mean? What's the matter with me? What's happening? Am I losing it? That's more OCD. Yeah. People that have psychosis, they're not looking for reassurance because when people try to do reality testing, this is the first thing that you learn. And, you know, for all the people out there, if you go to grad school, the first thing that you learn when you work with people that are really significantly mentally ill, if someone is psychotic, you don't argue with them because if you do, It makes them more agitated. So if someone says, you know, Jesus is coming to lunch, you don't say, no, he's not. He's not in the room right now. You would say, what kind of sandwich did he have? You go along with it. Yeah. So they get agitated because they think everyone else around them is dismissing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. They're like, I'm stuck with all these kooks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's totally, totally one of those things. And when they hit some of the barriers... Or they hit some of the boundaries of reality that is imposing upon the narrative. And it could be a narrative that in and of itself, if you were experiencing 
be really mm-hmm. distressing, but also it could be Jesus coming to lunch and you're like, you're not letting Jesus in here. Gosh, it's like, <laughs> these people think they are, you know? Right. <laughs> exactly. And so in terms of looking at the delusions and hallucinations, sometimes they may mm-hmm. even see things. Mm-hmm. Now, within OCD, sometimes we can have flashes or images that can manifest in the mind. Sure. But usually they're not playing like a movie reel in real time and you're participating, right? right? They're this thought. And now it's the meaning and the evaluation of that that is bringing a lot more distress, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So in terms of providers aren't super knowledgeable, the screener isn't super helpful. No shame to you, Scotland. We got got some Scots here in in the fam. (laughs) But like you're saying, and this is one of the pieces even when we're thinking for our BIPOC population, right? Like if you didn't grow up in the same circumstances, there's some cultural differences that have to be accounted for. And there's going to be a difference in feeling understood, seen, validated, all of those different things. So what do we do with that? Other than go out and try to create outreach with our doctors who are going to be one of the first lines of defenses, people are more likely to go to their OBGYN or their general practitioner than they are to go to a therapist with this. They are going to be scared that Child Protective Services might get involved, might think, especially, again, for some of our immigrant families, for our BIPOC population, but also anybody can go in there and be like, man, yeah, I heard somebody was going to maybe hurt their kid up for sure. And it's not even maybe hurt their kid, right? Like it's not even a, I did hurt them, but I had this thought that made me think I could be capable of this and and so much more. And like you said, it's not exclusive to harm. We happen to be using some of the harm examples right now. So what do we do to help provide access and understanding and some hope for people that are feeling the rubs that you've been able to outline here with some of the the challenges and disadvantages we have. Yeah. So my focus in the last several years or so has been getting as much advocacy out there as possible. So, you know, doing podcasts, being able to get information out there, accurate information about what perinatal OCD is, what it looks like. In my particular area, I have been on a mission to try to educate doulas and OBGYNs and midwives and lactation consultants and pretty much anyone I can get my hands on that's in the maternal mental health world to try to just get that information out there as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that we normalize this experience of perinatal OCD to the folks that have been through it and not just providers, then we can get word of mouth just through the community. Yeah. And just saying like, yeah, this is what I went through. And and just that healing statement of like, yeah, me too. I was I went through that too. It was awful. What kind of thoughts did you have? You had thoughts about harming your child while this person had fears of contamination happening, you know? So I think that that community connection is huge and in some ways even more validating than going into your provider and then being like, oh, you have OCD but being able to connect with other folks that have been through this really very unique experience of knowing what it's like to have gone through it. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I'm meeting with different clients or chatting with folks at trainings, et cetera, I've heard this concern, and I'm sure you've heard this as well. It might be a new parent or it might be a parent that already had one or more kids. 
and they may say, I'm afraid because I know I have OCD and it's caused such hell for me that I'm afraid that if I have a child that this is going to torture me and I'm I, like nothing more scary could happen, which is saying a lot because life's been hard, you know. Right. And that fear of for sure, if I have a kid, this is going to happen, which it isn't for sure. Like OCD right. pops up in a lot of different ways. It changes and shapeshifts over time. It can be recurrent themes or whole ass brand new themes that can pop up. And so I'm sure you've heard that concern as well. And what would you say to folks that are feeling some of that anxiety, even at this stage where we're thinking about someday, maybe I'll become a parent or maybe you're actively trying to get pregnant or currently pregnant. And so you are technically within that perinatal window. What would you say to folks that are in that process? I would say in this way, I'd take a little bit of an act approach, which is don't let the experience of OCD make your world small. So if having a child, having a family is something that is important to you, you go towards what is a value of yours and bring OCD along for the ride because mm-hmm. it's there anyway, mm-hmm. right? And nine times out of 10, People have been through the worst with OCD already. So if you've been through it already, mm-hmm. it can't ever get any worse than that. So if you've already been through it, you know what it is, you know the beast that it is, then don't let OCD call the shots for how you're going to live your life. If that's important to you, then you go for it. And of course, you can work with a therapist and strategize around, okay, if you know that you're likely going to have a spike around a certain time around postpartum, or maybe even while you're pregnant, you strategize for how you're going to handle when those spikes come up, because that's totally doable. Yeah. But I'm a big believer in taking OCD wherever you go and buckling. I always bring the uh, the metaphor of like, put it in your purse or put it in your pocket, buckle it into your passenger seat in your car Yeah. uh, and bring it with you because it's, it's there anyway. And don't let it make your world into such a small experience that you look back and then you have regrets that oh, I, did, I wish I could have done that but it's because of OCD that I couldn't yeah you know it's interesting I, I've said similar things to uh, clients about trauma right like you can carry it mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be the one carrying you and controlling you yes it's a part of you but also you can carry it. And even last week, I had a guest, Sarah, who was talking about, yeah, put OCD in the baby carrier. She used to baby carrier. She got it a pack and carried her baby around until she was three. And she was like, yeah, you know, this is a part of you. And it is. I think some some part of that is that acceptance of, I don't have to like this part of me. There is hope and recovery for this part of me, but it's part of me. I, I will hear similar concerns across a myriad of different groups. For example, I have celiac disease and people with an autoimmune disease that is genetically based, you're a gene carrier, it gets triggered or it doesn't, whatever the factors are, they'll be like, but what if, if I want to have a kid, they might have celiac. And it's like, don't let celiac limit mm-hmm. you having a family if that's something you want to pursue. If you want to adopt don't let OCD get in the way and say, yeah, but you probably won't be safe or whatever. Chances are, if you're hearing this podcast, you know enough to know, like, this isn't your fault. It's not your fault. And so that is an important aspect of this and really important to remember, like, you get to exactly like you said, Gina, you get to choose the values you want to move toward. And I think that's a really beautiful reminder because OCD doesn't get to be the boss. It doesn't. 
You do. This is your life. And yes, it's a part of your brain. Your brain's going to brain. But your brain does a lot of beautiful things. OCD is one part of many, many complex things happening for you. And you get to have the life you value and move toward the life you choose. So I think that's a really great reminder. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned the Edinburgh screener that is often Mm -hmm. given at a health checkup six or eight weeks postpartum and how it's not the most robust or best measure to be able to capture depression, let alone OCD. So can we talk about what screenings or assessments or even questions that we can keep in mind that might be helpful for flagging? Could this have to do with OCD? Could it be perinatal OCD? And if you suspect that, then you can access a practitioner that works with OCD to be able to check that further. Yeah, for sure. So I do think that the best tool that we have for screening is our own clinical judgment and the clinical questions that we ask, the the interview, basically. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of different screening tools that we have available, but they all have their downsides. And right. I think ultimately the the best screening tool that we have is ourselves and our clinical judgment. So I will just say that first. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of other assessment tools when we're looking at perinatal OCD that can be really helpful. So that the Y box and maybe the OBQ44, which is the obsessive beliefs questionnaire, and it's 44 questions, which is where that number comes from. We have the Padua inventory. So we have a lot of different scales that are available. There are even more like specific for the perinatal experience. So like the perinatal obsessive compulsive scale or the postpartum distress measure parental thoughts and behaviors checklist. Those are a little bit harder to get your hands on. Yeah. But they do exist. So those are, you know, certainly helpful in being able to really narrow down like what is going on there. But I still think that the best tool that we have is our own, what we're seeing and the questions that we're asking to arrive at that diagnosis. Yeah. And, you know, you actually have a short list of questions that you will sometimes ask during that clinical overview. And fam, I'm also going to put links, as I always do, for each episode on this episode's blog over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com because you can check out more of the work and there's just probably going to be a lot of different resources or information that you can review if you're like, okay, I'm taking it in. Okay, now I'm ready for more. I'm going to link you to Gina's practice and I'm sure that she has a lot more on this over there. But can we talk about some of those questions that you came up with that I think are really helpful in terms of screening and determining should maybe I assess further for something like this or find somebody that can assess further for this for some of the family going, we don't, I don't know, this is me. I'm thinking about my wife. Yeah. So, yeah, I would would love to share those with the fam if you're up for it. Absolutely. So these are sort of more like general questions that I would ask regardless of what diagnosis I think might be coming in. but. Things like, does this person have a history of mental health struggles in the past? Have they ever been diagnosed? Were they diagnosed with an anxiety disorder? Or do they ever have a depressive episode in the past? Also, is there a family history for any of those mental health struggles? Has anyone in their family been diagnosed? Again, not that family history of having mental health issues is like a slam dunk for someone developing them later. But the analogy I like to use is that genetics loads the gun and then environment pulls the trigger. So if we have that there, as we know that maybe they're genetically loaded for having a specific diagnosis happen later in life, 
it's just something good to have on the back burner to know that it's possible. That is that is a very good way of putting that. That's very visual. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> yes. Some other really important questions are going to be like, is the person sleeping? Have they ever had changes in their recent sleeping? Are they sleeping more or less than usual? Are they taking any prescribed or unprescribed medications? Again, I live in New Jersey, so medical marijuana is legal. So that's something that I want to know is if if they have their medical marijuana card, if that's something that they are using, because that can feed into some symptoms for folks. Mm-hmm. Do they have any just regular medical concerns outside of mental health, right? Do they have any autoimmune conditions? Do they have any chronic health issues that they have maybe had in remission for a long time or not in remission? But what does that look like for them? Yeah. Was the pregnancy high risk? Did they have any concerns like preeclampsia? Did they have gestational diabetes? Did they have hyperemesis gravidarum? All of these things are going to be important to know for during pregnancy and postpartum. What was their delivery like? Did they have significant blood loss? Those can really impact mental health as well. If someone has had significant blood loss, they can have symptoms that are going to look like depression, but it can be from it can be from anemia because their circulating blood volume is is too low and their red blood cells might have been compromised. So then more specific issues or specific questions I might ask are things like, has this person had any intrusive thoughts or verbalized any thoughts that are scaring them? Thoughts about hurting the baby or hurting themselves? Are they having any new thoughts that are upsetting them in any way? I might even normalize it to say, Things like many new parents get thoughts that are upsetting and they seem to stick around. These thoughts can almost be like violent, scary movies in our heads, like maybe about something happening to the baby or something happening to us. Mm -hmm. Sometimes being able to just normalize that experience, you're going to get a little more of a, not a buy-in, but you're going to get less shame and more more ability to, yeah, share and, and yeah. Yeah, exactly. If it's, If it's not something that they have to start the conversation, but if we're starting that conversation, it's more likely that someone will want to be able to talk about that. And, you know, Gina, you you mentioned having any thoughts about harming the baby or harming yourself. And what I also want to say is, particularly within postpartum depression, and you don't have to necessarily have a depressive disorder to actually be suicidal. And we talk a lot over the course of many of these episodes we've done about the difference between harm OCD and true suicidality or homicidality. However, what I will say is sometimes both can exist. So there can be sure. some suicidal thoughts that are truly suicidal thoughts based on a myriad of factors. But there can also be then that intrusive fear of but what if mm-hmm. in addition to that. And so I think it's really tough because a lot of these folks especially in this group that we're chatting about for the perinatal group, are going to be seeing doctors, if anyone, usually, unless they already were established with their therapist or whatnot. But they're probably going to start medically first. And there isn't Mm -hmm. a great understanding. And sometimes there can be both. And so what would you say speaking to that piece? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, again, like, It just highlights that sort of divide between the medical world and the mental health world because physical health is mental health and mental health is physical health. They're they're all the same. We're all living in the same meat sack. So it's not like the two are going to be different. The meat sack. 
That should be a Hallmark card, Gina. Be like, hi, happy birthday, meat sack, from one meat sack to another. I love it. <laughs> Thinking of you, meat sack. I love it. <laughs> love it. Okay. All right. Go ahead. But I think that they they go so closely hand in hand. And I think being able to validate if someone has medical stuff going on, that's going to affect their mental health. And it doesn't mean anything about them at all, you know. So being able to start there and say, you know, if there was something that medically happened, that's that's part of your experience. And that deserves attention just as much as whatever mental health is that's going on for them. Yeah. What I would add, too, is if your loved one has a history in terms of when we assess risk and we think about often within our field, we will make a safety plan. Depending on the level of severity, that plan might look like a verbal contract. It might be a very comprehensive plan. And so if there is a history of maybe even family history of suicide attempts or successes, if the person has passed suicide attempts or has maybe even had a lower level presentation where they're like, I promise I would tell somebody before I would ever actually hurt myself. But sometimes I just think like it'd be easier if I wasn't here. If they have that history, then I think it's something to be mindful of. We always are going to try and protect the person no matter what. They're too important to lose. Right. And so if we go, I can't tell the difference here. We're going to err on the side of caution. Human life is is worth protecting. But at the same time, understanding, and if you are the loved one here, fam, and you know, okay, this person might actually be suicidal, but I also hear some of the OCD entangling, which OCD loves to do, loves to Mm -hmm. be like, what? A a way I can torture? I'm here for it. And so if you know that, and they're going to be overseen by a doctor, or say you even go to a hospital and need to go inpatient. You can be an advocate for that person. And I understand as a therapist alone trying to advocate for somebody already an inpatient and telling them like what you're seeing is complex and there's probably more layers than meets the eye. Sometimes it can be hard to feel like you get those points across. But you as a family member have even more access generally than someone like a therapist with a release of information. You're going to be in the family meetings. You're going to be talking with the caseworkers or nurse practitioners there on the units. And so you can advocate, yes, this person also has OCD, so I can hear some of that doubt, but they also have this history. So you can advocate for those pieces as well. And I think that's something that if you suspect both are there, or if you're like, that is like above my pay grade, I don't know how to suspect that, then take them to somebody that could distinguish that. And if you have a trusted doctor, then maybe you can do a collaboration with a therapist and a doctor. I mean, ultimately, we want that person to be safe. We don't want them to be traumatized of like, oh, no, this is justifying my fear that harm OCD. We've definitely seen people with harm OCD be misdiagnosed and hospitalized and in a unit of people that are actively suicidal or homicidal. And that's terrifying because it feels like I wouldn't be here if I wasn't a psycho. See, I, I must be. But you know your loved one and you can also go, okay, I know they've had some of these struggles in the past though. So we want to cover our bases, but I'm also going to advocate for them. They also have OCD and this isn't all, like they're not all just thinking about the egocentric factors of this. There is also some of this imagination amplifying the story around it. Yeah, for sure. Oh, gosh, those are really good questions. Would you mind if I put it on this episode's blog? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, so fam, those specific questions even, I'm going to put a copy 
from Gina over on this episode's blog. It'll be from one of her many presentations that she's been able to collect these thoughts. And then if you're driving or you're out running, and not from a bear, but like for fun, because people do that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> then you can always check out the blog post and get a little overview. Or if you want to incorporate that into your practice or maybe bring it to your OBGYN and say, hey, these are some interesting things. We'd love to talk to you about them. So that kind of brings us then to what does treatment look like when someone is experiencing perinatal OCD? And again, they may have known they had OCD, but we're going to probably find that most folks going into this did not have that on the radar. And so what does treatment look like when we're talking about perinatal OCD? Yeah. So the beautiful thing about OCD and perinatal OCD is that it is highly treatable. So there are so many treatment options out there for people depending on what works best for them and their learning style and just their personalities. There's so many different treatment options that are available for them. So I just want to put that out there because there is hope for this. Yeah. When we're looking at OCD, Generally, the first line treatment that we're going to use is therapy. So we're going to use either something that's going to be more of an uh, exposure-based treatment or something that's going to be more of like a cognitive-based treatment. So just some options, just to name a few, uh, would be things like exposure and response prevention, inference-based CBT, metacognitive therapy, mindfulness-based CBT specifically for OCD, and acceptance and commitment therapy. So those are some of those treatment options for therapy look like. Medication can be helpful as an augmentation for therapy, but medication is not required or necessary for all people to achieve recovery, Mm -hmm. especially if we're going to compare it to more significant mental health things. Like it's it's not going to be required in the same way that those are. And then I'm also a really, really big proponent of looking at family support and looking at the role of family accommodation. Mm -hmm. So just in the same way that when we're treating kids with OCD, we're going to look at family accommodation. It's still really important to look at the family's role and how they might be co-compulsing or feeding into that OCD cycle for the person with perinatal OCD. So it's, it's just so common for partners or spouses or family members, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, whoever, friends, they get swept up in co-compulsions or even doing compulsions for the person with OCD. So I really like to incorporate that into treatment for my own clients where we do a lot of education around that accommodation cycle for the families and we help them to navigate reducing some of those compulsions and accommodations that they might be making for their loved one with OCD. Yeah, It's sort of like a, I guess, like a take on space, which is supportive parenting for anxious childhood emotions. But we're using this not for children, but for adults. And we're using it more in like the family dynamic for them. Yeah. So an example might be, and earlier you had you had given a number of different ways OCD can manifest. And you mentioned pedophilia OCD. What I will say, because maybe folks tuning in may not be familiar with it. And if you're not familiar with it, I'm happy for you because it's it's a mm-hmm. it's not that any part of OCD is fun, but it, OCD is so cruel. 
But let's say you had an intrusive thought or an obsessional doubt around what if I'm changing my baby's diaper, especially when they're real little and they can't turn anything on their own. They're completely defenseless. Like you are keeping them alive for sure. And you're changing their diaper and you have this thought of what if I touched my child? And obviously you're going to have to clean them, particularly in the very beginning. Parents, you know, if you know about meconium or any of that, it's going to be a little bit more of a project. And so if you had an intrusive thought and you're like, well, what if I, you know, I'm, I'm touching their genitals and I'm trying to wipe them. But what if I like accidentally wipe them and it, it was more sexual and I wasn't trying to be mm-hmm. sexual? This could be a good example of what pedophilia OCD can present like. It's egotistonic. So it's the last thing in the world you would want to do is somehow sexualize mm-hmm. or do something sexual to your innocent, fragile baby, right? But also, you can imagine then, if you have this fear, what if I, and the deal with OCD is it's repetitive, it's sticky, right? So that's not a one and done. We all get intrusive thoughts and you're like, blah, I reject that, move on with life. But it's this thing that comes up every time you're going to do a diaper change. Then maybe every time you're washing clothes and you see a blowout or you see any evidence of leaking, which happens a lot with babies. Or if you are buying diapers or if you're washing cloth diapers or whatever the the circumstance is. And so if you were like, you know what, I can't risk anything ever happening to them. And because I had this thought, my partner needs to clean the baby, my wife, my husband. And so if you got into that kind of situation where you as the partner, some of the partners listening are going to be like, yeah, I do all the diaper changes, right? Because of this, or, or, or it can be a number of different things, not just with pedophilia OCD. But what you're talking about then in the co-compulsing is if you're helping that person be able to avoid that fear that they could do something implicitly, though you wouldn't want to be like, yeah, monster, get out of here. Implicitly, it can reinforce that idea that, yeah, I am not safe and, and they have to do it or else the baby isn't going to be safe, Right. And that can really grow and really sink its teeth into so many different aspects of your daily routine, of your family system, of your health. And so you can see how, well, but they're so distressed and I wouldn't want something to actually happen to the baby because they're like panicking so much just trying to change them. But at the same time, we recognize like, yeah, but also... This is part of how the person has been able to also reinforce and nurture this fear because they don't ever have to touch the baby when it comes to anything private, right? And that's just banning the flame of their fear. So, yeah, I mean, it's a good example. And I do like to every now and then. So somebody might have heard that and been like, what is that? It's not pedophilia. It's not pedophilia. Let me say it again for the people in the back. It's not pedophilia. It's an intrusive, obsessional doubt that is just as ego-dystonic as all get out. It's OCD in that scenario. And so, again, it's not a value-driven thing that you would want to have happen. It's not like, yeah, you got an A on your test, and then we touched. <laughs> no, it's not fun. It's not, it's not a desire, even. And we've talked about that in terms of how... OCD, different responses, organal responses, different things can happen for folks when experiencing that thing. So I just wanted to touch base on that. And then you talked about that kind of three-prong approach. So there's therapy. Medication is an option. Some folks may be breastfeeding. There are still some medications that can be Mm -hmm. safely taken while breastfeeding, but always talk with your doctor about that. 
But as you said, it doesn't even have to be there. If you find the noise around all of the OCD story getting so big and so overwhelming, which is always overwhelming, but like can't think of anything else, it might be worth looking at that and considering medication because it can help turn down that noise. But if you're like, no, <laughs> I mean, I don't like it, but I, I, I would feel worse and feel even more triggered if I ended up having to go on a medication, then sounds like that's not the one for you. You do you and that's okay, but always consult with your doctor if you're considering that. And then I love what you talked about with the family support. I was even thinking earlier as we were chatting, like I've been to many lactation groups over the years. <laughs> Okay, that is a stressed out room, uh -huh. <laughs> very sure. stressed out room. And bless the lactation consultants that are just so lovely as everyone unravels around them. But yeah, you can see how it becomes so easy to become compulsive around feeding and weighing and pumping and waking and letting the baby sleep but no you got to wake up because supply and demand and all the things that can happen around breastfeeding and so again it's compulsive nature alone doesn't make something ocd so if you're going through something where you're like i am struggling with my milk production and i am a little compulsive about that that that's not necessarily ocd ocd is really going to have the presence of both compulsions and those obsessions that do not go away and there's going to be different things that come up for different people. So some of the takeaways would be if you or your loved one is planning or currently pregnant or have had a baby within that zero to one year. But even if you're feeling some long term effects, you know what? We're not going to hold you out. Like if you're like, my kid's three and I still do this. It's like, OK, join us. Join us. <laughs> it's OK. <laughs> OCD could still be there. Let's get some help. Let's get some uh, hope going here. But yeah, there are some of these questions or ways to talk with your providers, even if they don't know about it. Any other resources that you would recommend us pointing to? Obviously, I'm going to point to Gina. I'm going to point to you, but can tell me about Change of Mind Counseling Services or any other services you would think would be good resources for folks. I'd be here for it. Yeah, for sure. So there's always my practice. I have a small group practice here in New Jersey and we're multi-specialty, but there's several of us that specialize in treating OCD, and that's change of mind counseling. So you're always welcome to reach out to me and contact me through there. My email is in there, and I think there's also a contact form that every all roads come to me. So no matter how you get me, you're still going to get me. And then for providers or even for people that maybe want just more education and training about perinatal OCD or OCD in general, we also have OCD training school. Yeah, uh, which is ocdtrainingschool.com. And we provide different trainings and webinars and just a ton of content around OCD proper. So we, yeah. have, we have all different forms of OCD with different treatment therapy options, as well as different presentations of it. And we also have a self-help program that is specifically through inference-based CBT for OCD. So that's geared towards people that have OCD and might want to try out ICBT, but can't find a therapist in their area to support them. So lots of options, lots of availability. If you want to get in touch with me, you can through multiple venues. Yeah. <laughs> and happy to help, however. 
That's that's great. And yeah, I, I love that. There are a lot of really good resources out there. OCD training school has been adding. I feel like every time I look, there's like more and more adding. Is there a course specific to perinatal OCD on there right now? There um, is. Yep. It's probably your um, course. <laughs> it is my course. Yes. Uh, it's a pretty deep dive. Also, we talk about what OCD is and isn't. We talk about the differences between OCD and other anxiety disorders and the difference between OCD and postpartum depression. Yeah. We take a a little bit of a deeper, like a scratch the surface, not super deep into each of the treatment options, but just a little bit of like a snippet of what that would look like for folks. I talk about cultural differences within perinatal OCD, and it's generally geared more towards clinicians, but I have had people that just want more information about perinatal OCD or folks that have perinatal OCD and they just want to gather as much information as they can because they're also curious, lifelong learners like I am. Right. So it's really kind of, you know, just available to whoever needs it. I love that. Yeah. What's interesting about OCD and it, it just kind of depends on the time. It depends on kind of where you're at. But sometimes just hearing like this is normal. Mm-hmm. Even if it's been really rattling you, like a little shift, that little bit of psychoeducation, that little bit of understanding is enough to sometimes unhook that pattern, that cycle. And you go, oh, yeah, OK, well, I can let go of that, which is yeah. so free. And so for some people, they may hear this and they may go, oh, OK, well, there are resources and I'm not alone. And that's enough to minimize or extinguish some of the fear around them. Sure. But yeah, if you are wanting to learn more. And a lot of the content out there may be more suited for therapists, but you can always access it as well and hear it. Another place where there's going to be chatter about these kind of topics, ADAA here in Mm -hmm. America. That's the Association of Depression and Anxiety of America, something like that. And (laughs) I'm sure they'll appreciate the way I said that. I might fix it. I might not. (laughs) Who knows? We'll see how I'm feeling. Or the International OCD Foundation is another one, OCD training school, like we talked about. But also there are a lot of works coming out of the UK. There's a huge base in Australia, all around the world where you're going to be able to hear more. And there are going to be people that are putting out more awareness and understanding, helping people understand that you're not alone. You're not weird. You're not broken. You're human. You have a brain. You're a meat sack. Was it meat sack or meat bag? Meat bag, maybe. With a brain. Meat sex with a brain. There we go. A meat sack with a brain. I mean, I, I swear, like, that's a Hallmark card. Okay. So <laughs> I, I enjoy that. And I want to thank you, Gina, for coming and chatting with me today. It's so lovely to finally meet you in virtual. And I just appreciate you coming and talking with the fam and spreading more hope. I think this is really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm just so excited to be able to help however I can. And she has. She's made such an impact and continues to do so. So we we thank her. Thank you for that. All right, my fellow meat sacks. <laughs> I mean, TBH, uh, that's to be honest for anyone wondering. I feel kind of like a meat sack right now. So I think that's accurate. Oh, gosh, this sickness, I tell you. But this too shall pass, even though it's no fun. And hey, at this point, I know how to sit with discomfort, even if it's mainly physical discomfort. I can endure it. And I'm still living my life anyway. I'm putting out the podcast. 
I'm having our little family meet sack reunion. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I'm still living my life. So I am grateful for that. And so for today's intrusive thought segment, which is our application segment of the show, I'm going to encourage us to do something, fam. Remember when Gina was talking earlier about some of the ways we can help folks in the trenches of despair when they're feeling and experiencing perinatal OCD, other subtypes, or other manifestations of mental health? And they're thinking, this, this is a me problem, actually. Oh, it's me. And I'm scared. One of the things she mentioned that can really make a difference is doing podcasts, like hanging with us, fam, as well as sharing about what you're learning. So if you're here now, tuning into this episode, you're already contributing to the solution by learning more, learning what this is and how it can look. So thank you, fam. Thank you for helping increase awareness. It really does matter. But as a second part, I'm going to encourage and emphasize Gina's point that I just reviewed. Share it. Share it. So I have three simple ways, three suggestions, which are three of many creative solutions you can try. But sometimes us meat sacks are tired, right? Like me, I'm tired. So in case you're out of energy or the spoons to think about this, here are a few suggestions. Number one, you could share this episode. Share the link with a friend, text it, share, like, subscribe across social media, share the audiogram, you name it. Because you and I, Gina, any of us, we don't have to be an expert on all the things. But raising awareness, saying, hey, did you know this is a thing? To your mommy and me yoga group, to your mops friends or your daycare peeps, that can actually make a huge difference. Even if you're going in for a well woman exam. I mean, you got some time to talk, right? Number two, you could share about this at the dinner table. So I know not all families have schedules or abilities to sit down together and eat. Or even if you do, maybe it's not a custom practice. But just like we can come to this family table, when we can hang out with our individual family crews, it's powerful. And that can lead to really invaluable time for connection, OCD or not. But imagine, I'm setting a scene just like I'm setting the table for dinner. And you say something like, hey, did you know it's fairly common that people can get intrusive thoughts after becoming parents or being an aunt or a new uncle, a grandparent? And also there's this thing called OCD and it's not about keeping that diaper drawer optimally packed or the closet color coordinated. I mean, so much of our thoughts and response to health concerns, let alone crises, fam, they start at a family level. So just imagine sharing this because I can't tell you the number of times I've had a conversation even more broadly about OCD where at least one person at the table in the small group in the gathering would say something along the line of, actually, I do know a person that dealt with that one. Or, hey, you know, your grandma used to have some of those kind of fears or something similar. And my third way that you could help is by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app or liking and subscribing on YouTube. The power of the algorithm is real, fam. <laughs> and by leaving reviews or engaging in your subscriptions, it really does help increase the visibility. So something as simple as a five-star review saying, I learned so much about OCD, wee! <laughs> something like that that can take less than 15 seconds to type, it's a form of advocacy, fam, because it can increase visibility for other folks. And it will recommend this podcast to more people about this thing called OCD and how it supposedly affects families. I mean, we're all here because we know that truth all too well. So whether you pick one, two, or all three, hey, 
I'm a recovering perfectionist. It's been known to happen. I encourage you all to participate in at least one way, fam, because your words, your actions, they can make a difference. And our voices can make a difference too. So join me if you would. A 15-second review, a three-second like or share, a simple hosing of the question. When you sit down and your mother, brother, sister, cousin says, hey, how was your day? Join Gina, join me, join us as we fight for not only our precious warriors, but for all of us as we pursue the hope and the freedom available in being able to add to what we know. Because we can't know what we don't know, but we can share what we do know. Help us bring awareness about OCD. And I'll see you next week, fam. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like uniting the meat sacks to beat OCD back. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.